Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that you be with us now by your grace, or rather through your Son and by your Spirit, that you lift us up, that we may know you, we may know your Son, we may understand uh, what we have lost in Adam, but also what we have regained in Christ. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, um, we said this morning that uh, we as precise, and um, as technically precise, rather, as, as we should when we consider theology, uh, and this evening, no doubt, we're going to aim to try to be as precise as we can. Um, again, introducing you to a few things that you might have uh, for those who go to Sunday school class in the morning. This much of what we talked about this will be very, very familiar with you. But this is a very glorious subject. Last time we were together, last time we were together, we talked about the threefold division of grace that is in Jesus Christ. Number one, the grace of union. Number two, habitual grace. And number three, capital grace. And uh, we really just were looking at the grace that Christ has in order for him to be our Savior. Now, when I say the grace that Christ has... Again, we are to make a distinction. That's what we do in theology. Um, we make distinctions. So we don't mean that Christ as God um, needed grace, but rather Christ as man, his humanity is received, uh, is given the full measure of grace. Okay, And as the head of the church, um, he gives to us the fullness of his grace. So... We're going to ask, or try to ask and answer, rather, this evening. Um, other than Christ having this grace to carry our, our salvation, uh, why was it necessary for him to have this grace in order for us to be saved? Um, specifically with relation to Adam and what Adam lost in the garden. Uh, because we're going to see that there is a connection between the grace that Adam had in the garden, and the grace that is given to Jesus Christ. Um, so, Westminster's Larger Catechism says in question 41, why was our mediator called Christ, or Jesus? The answer, our mediator was called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. So we have the premise here already that Christ saves us from our sins. When we consider the work of Christ, specifically Jesus saving his people from their sin, normally we talk about the, the death of Christ. Uh, and we tend to refer to Jesus Christ had to undergo uh, the debt, a punishment that we owe to God in order for us to be freed from that debt. Um, but this evening, I want us to consider how Jesus Christ frees us from the bondage and stain of sin. So we... I think we're pretty well um, versed and we, we know what Christ has done when he goes on the cross. I mean, I did a, a lesson on this, that Jesus Christ is offering to the Father uh, a sacrifice that we could not offer to the Father. He, and in offering himself as that sacrifice, what he's doing is he's paying off the debt that we owe to God. Um, we cannot, in and of ourselves, even if we had the fullness of grace, pay that debt off. Uh, but it is Jesus Christ who had to, rather the eternal Son, who is Christ, who had to pay off that debt. 
And now I want us to look at another aspect, again, of Christ's work, and that is how does Christ free us from the bondage and stain of sin? The bondage and stain of sin. And this is going to relate to the grace that Christ has in his humanity. What is the bondage and stain of sin? I'm not sure if any of you have ever heard of that before, but the bondage and stain of sin. There's a twofold bondage to sin that we have inherited from Adam. We have the stain of original sin, and we have acquired dispositions to sin. Again, we have the stain of original sin, and we have acquired dispositions to sin. The stain of original sin consists chiefly in the loss of original righteousness and the consequent corruption of all parts, faculties, and soul and body. Again, the stain of original sin consists chiefly in the loss of original righteousness, so that's one, and also the, the um, uh, consequent corruption of all our parts, faculties, soul, and body. Consider what our, our confession says in chapter 6, paragraph 2. Our parents, our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. And we in them, whereby death came upon them, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. So what our catechism is saying here, catechism, sorry, confession is saying, is they're really just repeating what all others have said before them, that when Adam sinned, there was a twofold, there was, rather, there was, there was a, 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 a loss, um, from Adam, or there's a loss of this of this original righteousness, and because of this loss of original righteousness, we are now defiled in all of our being. And then they're going to describe what does that mean to be defiled in our being in faculties, parts, the soul, and the body. Okay, let's ask and answer two questions: What is original righteousness, and what does it mean to lose original righteousness? Again, what is original righteousness? And what does it mean to lose original righteousness? We are looking at this because Adam had original righteousness. So what does it mean for Adam to have this and then lose it? Historically speaking, original righteousness um, refers to where our first parents, or rather I should say, refers to the state by which our first parents were created in. Okay, it refers to the state by which our first parents were created in. They were created holy and upright. Now, and righteous. Now, what does it mean for our first parents to be created holy, upright, and righteous? What does that mean? Theologians have said um, that Adam and Eve were created in a state of grace. A state of grace. And what that means is their minds were subordinated to God, their lower powers, which are their passions, were subordinated to their higher powers, which is their intellect. And will. And in order for Adam and Eve to reach their supernatural end, that is creator Sabbath rest, that is um, the beatific vision, in order for them to reach this supernatural end, they must be supernatural themselves. That is to say, they must be truly human, but also must be given grace in order to receive anything from God. This is what... Um, Theologians have said concerning Adam. We read in Thomas Aquinas, but the very rectitude of the primitive state 
wherein man was endowed by God seems to require that others, as others say, he was created in grace, according to Ecclesiastes 7.30, which says God made man right. For this rectitude consisted in his reason being subject to God and his lower power subject to reason and body to soul. Read the same thing in um, Wolebius, who says the image of God so, Wolebius is now going to describe the image of God. What is the image of God? This is it. Consists partly in natural gifts and partly in supernatural. So, the image of God consists in two, two gifts. Natural gifts and supernatural gifts. Now, what are the natural gifts? The natural gifts were the simple and invisible substance of the soul with its faculties, the intellect, and the will. So, Wolebius is essentially saying, what does it mean to be human? It means to have a will, to have an intellect, Soul and body. To be an animal, but a rational animal. That's essentially what Wolebius is saying. Supernatural gifts, he says now. Where the clearness of understanding, the liberty of rectitude of the will, the conformity of the appetites and affections, and immorality of the whole man and dominion over inferior creatures. Now, Gomorrah, so another reformed scholastic, says... Human being before the fall, so Adam before the fall, were made perfectly without any stain or lack of either soul or body. For human beings do not only consist of soul and body as essential parts, so again, what does it mean to be human? To have a soul and have a body. But also these super added ornaments. Namely, being endowed with original justice and holiness, the soul did not only direct the lower powers and potencies, but it also perfectly subjected the human being properly and personally to God. So that he was able to execute whatever God would command. Our confession of faith would say um, that Adam had the law written within him and the power to obey it. This is what the history of the Christian church is saying. Rather, I should say before, maybe 18th century. It gets a little weird after that. Um, so when we think about Adam... And the constitution of Adam, he has intellect, will, soul, body, all of these things that goes into being a human. And then he's given grace so that those faculties and properties of what it means to be human could be properly ordered to God. So Adam did the will of God. Why? Because he was given grace. He was properly ordered in such a way whereby he would obey the law of God and do the will of God. And then we can get into other things such as the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love that Adam had, the cardinal virtues, the gifts of the Spirit, all these other things. But for now, let's just deal with and speak about this alignment by which Adam had in the garden. But, of course, we know that Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And what's the consequence of Adam and Eve falling? The consequence, first and foremost, is they lost grace. They lost grace. And in losing grace, what do they lose? What happens? They now are disordered within them. There's a disordering within them, meaning man's reason is not subject to God. Man doesn't want to do the will of God. The lower powers, which is their passions, their emotions, their affections, are not subject to reason. And the body never is subject to the soul. So again, why do people do what they, why do people do what they do? Because they want to do it. Right? 
They want to do it. And their wanting usually does not come from an objective truth, but rather what their passions say. This is why a lot of people uh, cheat on their wives or maybe steal things or murder uh, because their desires and passions have overrode their reason and their will. Um, in many ways, they have distorted their minds um, because of the fall as well. <clears throat> when Adam fell, what man lost was grace and the gifts of God. That is to say, when Adam sinned, those powers of the soul that were rightly ordered to God are now disordered, which is a direct result of the loss of grace. Now man is left to his natural powers, apart from the grace of God. And man left to his natural powers, man without grace can do what? Sin. That's all man can do. Man cannot turn to a spiritual good and do a spiritual good. Why? Because they themselves do not have grace. John Calvin. I feel pleased with the well-known saying, which has been borrowed from the writings of Augustine, that man's natural gifts were corrupted by sin and his supernatural gifts withdrawn. This is Calvin saying, what's the result of the fall of Adam? That... Our faculties, our will, our mind, our soul, all these things, our, our desires and passions, they're disordered. And also, those supernatural gifts were drawn. He says, meaning by supernatural gifts, the light of faith and righteousness, which have been sufficient for the attainment of heavenly life. Gomorrah. The defect, however, is this, that a human being is befret from Original righteousness and holiness, the source of every good action. Furthermore, that his immortal body has become mortal. So what would have happened in the garden if Adam never sinned? Well, what would have happened was his mortal body, which is subject to decay because it is, of course, a body. What he would have received, this, this endowment of the fullness of beatitude, and uh, uh, immutable uh, creator Sabbath rest, it would have overflowed into his body. To where now, not only is his soul immortal, but now his body is as well. Not only does his soul not receive or receive uh, 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 corruption, but his body also doesn't receive corruption as well. That's what would happen, I think. And the lower appetite runs counter to reason to such an extent that it throws off the yoke of reason and tries to obtain dominion. We know this well, right? Where um, our, our, our passions and our desires, they throw off what is good and what is true and what you ought to be doing. I know I need to be going to church Sunday morning, but my pastors are telling me, stay asleep. We know that. The scriptures speak of this. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3. Among them, we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. Notice what Paul is saying, that we live in the lusts. We live in the passions. We live uh, in those things of our flesh. 
we allow our flesh to override uh, our minds. And God's word, too. John Gill says concerning this verse, not only the body and several members of it are defiled with sin and disposed to it, but all the powers and faculties of soul, even the more noble and governing ones, the mind. So here Gill is saying the mind is supposed to govern. It's, it's more, more powerful than the passions. Understanding and will, as well as the affections, and great is the power and influence which lust has over them. Notice what Gill is saying here? A Reformed Baptist. I don't know if he's ever read medieval theologians. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. But here he's echoing what the church has said concerning Adam's fall. And that is, the passions now have dominion and power over the mind and the will. By Adam's fall, we have acquired a habitual disposition to sin. Meaning, we can't do nothing other than sin. Just as doing good, we acquire virtue, which disposes us to further good. In doing evil, we acquire vice, which derives or deprives our powers and faculties of their proper order. And in so doing evil, we are inclined to do evil. John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You commit sin because... You have a habitual disposition to sin. When I said this last week, it's sort of like if in and out was presented before me, I have a habitual disposition to eat the burger. When chocolate chip cookies are presented before me, I have a habitual disposition to eat the cookies. It's like I cannot other, I cannot do anything other than eat the cookies. We can't do nothing other than sin in our Adamic state. Second Peter 2 9, 19. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what anyone is overcome, or for by what anyone is overcome, uh, by this he is enslaved. Two more verses, Romans one twenty four. Therefore God gave, gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dis- dishonor their own bodies between themselves. In Romans one twenty eight. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. What we see in both of these regards, Paul describes mankind as a slave. This is, this is the consequence of the loss of grace. We are now slaves to sin. Not so much as they have lost the actual uh, faculty of willing. Man still has the ability to will. This is the problem. Their will is habitually inclined to darkness. You see, when Adam fell, he doesn't become less human. He, what remains is his natural faculties. It's just now his faculties are bent. They're toward the left rather than toward the right. If right is, if we all agree that right is good and left is bad, no offense to lefties, but that's what it is. Um, how does Christ now save his people from their sins? Rather the stain of sin. Christ, um, um, since we have lost grace in all God's gifts, Because of our parents' first sin, since we now have this habitual inclination to sin now because of Adam, how do we get back what we lost? The answer is through Christ communicating to us the fullness of grace that he possesses in his humanity. That is how. 
by Jesus Christ communicating, giving to us the fullness of grace that he possesses in his humanity. Not that all at once Christ gives to us the fullness of grace, because then we would never sin. But he gives it to us measurably, measurably. And this has historically been called sanctification. This is sanctification. What is sanctification? Petrus van Maastricht says, By sanctification we mean the physical operation of God, by which he infuses holiness into his own and secures his exercise. The Westminster Lord Catechism says in question 77, where does justification and sanctification differ? So we, we hear a lot about justification and sanctification. What's the difference between them? It says here, although, just, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ. In other words, you can't have one without the other, but we make a distinction. In that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enables to the exercise thereof. In the former, sin is pardoned. In the, in the, in the other, sin is subdued. Notice, saints, that the Westminster Larger Catechism says the Spirit infuses grace. In sanctification, again, this process of conforming to the image of Christ, the Spirit pours out grace into the soul of the believer. That's what sanctification is. Um, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing now. That's what happens when the means of grace are going forth. The Spirit infuses grace into the soul. And the source of that grace, where does it come from? It comes from the humanity of Christ. The Spirit takes the grace in Christ's humanity and gives it to you. It's exactly the grace that Christ has in his humanity that he, by the Spirit, gives to his people. You see, Christ doesn't have the fullness of grace just for himself. He has the fullness of grace so he can dispense that grace to the members of his body, us, the church. And this, cat- and this grace, the catechism says, enables us to kill sin. And the enabling thereof, which means this, and don't I'm not a heretic when I say this. It means that we must cooperate with the grace of God. That's what that means. In sanctification, in conforming to the image of God, to the conformity to the image of Christ, he gives us grace to enable us, to motivate us, to help us along so that we can cooperate with that grace and kill sin. And of course, love God above all else. This enabling is both being habitually inclined to do the will of God. And then in many cases, men, we'll, we'll learn about this tomorrow. God gives the believer actual grace. That in that very moment, he moves you to overcome sin. And all this grace comes from our Christ. Again, we read this yes, uh, last Sunday evening, John 1, 14 and 16, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory, at, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So here we see that Jesus Christ is full of grace. In verse 16, for of his fullness, this fullness of grace that he has, we have all received grace upon grace. 
So from the fullness of the grace of Christ, we now receive that grace. As we have learned last week, Christ from the very moment of conception is full of grace and truth. Filled with grace by the Spirit without measure. In order that he might be able to communicate and infuse that grace to his mystical body, us the church. As Calvin says, we are watered with the graces which were poured out on Christ. Or watered with those graces which were poured out on Christ. For what we receive from Christ, he does not only bestow upon us as being God, but the Father communicated to him what would flow to us as through a canal. As Christ is the head of the church, he takes the grace that the Father bestowed upon his own humanity, and by the Spirit, he gives us all of what he has. For what purpose now? What is the purpose of us receiving this grace? It was said to us this morning in Pastor Antonio's uh, sermon. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her. The, The reasoning for this grace is for sanctification. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present himself, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory without having any spot, wrinkle, or such thing. That she would be holy and blameless. Now notice, saints, <coughs> Christ here sanctifies the church. Christ sanctifies the church. He uses the instruments of uh, teachers and, 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 and others to, to help that uh, cause. But as it was said this morning, These verses imply that the church in her current state is not what she will look like in her final state. That there is there is something about the church in her visible state that she is in now that is not going to look like what she will look like in the final state. Just like uh, a woman who is wearing normal clothes that's not what she's going to look like on her wedding day. She's going to have on a different outfit. She's, her, her appearance is going to be different. Or, you're, you know, you're going to say, wow, when she comes down the aisle, right? What we read in these verses, um, and what was alluded to this morning in Pastor Antonio's sermon, that salvation is not only about the imputation of Christ's righteousness so that we may have a right standing before God, but salvation is the process of changing our nature. Salvation, yes, is about this standing before God, but also it's about us being changed. All of us, our, all of our being being changed. John Calvin, do you wish to attain righteousness in Christ? You must first possess Christ, but you cannot possess him without being made partaker of his sanctification. Because he cannot be divided. In other words, you don't get Christ for justification without getting Christ also for sanctification. You don't get Christ's righteousness without also getting Christ for wisdom. In our sharing in Christ, which justifies us, sanctification is just as much included as righteousness So, 
And this is Calvin goes on, talks about this uh, double grace that we receive from Christ. We receive justification and sanctification from Christ. That uh, although we are saved by faith alone, uh, that faith is never alone. It's always accompanied uh, with right and holy living. And what enables us to live right and holy is the spirit infusing Christ's grace in our souls. The Spirit's job is to change our faculties, our wills, our minds, our passions. For us to um, lead our wives the way that Christ led and loved the church. For wives to submit to their husbands the way that the church submits to Christ. You see, the natural man can't do those things in the way that God has prescribed for them to do it. Husbands can love their wives, the natural man without being saved. And uh, wives can submit to their husbands um, without being saved. However, they cannot do it in the way that God prescribed, which is the only way. They need grace. They need their faculties and our wills. and our. I mean, that's what God has been doing to me for uh, the amount of time that I've been with, with my wife. Before, I was selfish, uh, thinking about myself, not wanting kids. And now I'm thinking about having a multitude of kids. You know, like God, I'm becoming more selfless. The, the more uh, uh, I, I live with her and the more I live with my children. What is God doing inside me and as well as you? He's changing me from the inside out. He's changing my desires. He's changing my passions. But also, when I come across, you know, when I, when I tell her that, man, having more kids would be great. I said to myself, it's also not reasonable to do that. Like, I would love that, right? Um, and always, too, every single way uh, with, with her, uh, whether it's been uh, talking about what we are to do on the Sabbath, uh, wh- whether uh, we, we, sh- we should have a second service, all these things, saints, we're always trying to align our wills with God. A natural man can't do that. That is a supernatural, that's supernatural aid from God. Historically, theologians have described this new change by the Spirit as new habits. Um, a new habitus. The Spirit infused into the soul of the believer habitual grace so that... And habitual grace is simply a stable disposition to move towards the good. It's the love of God in the soul of the believer so that the believer may choose the good, may choose to do the will of God. Okay. This grace... Um, is a supernatural transformation of the creature. John Owen says, this is the last quote, I promise. John Owen says, it is a new gracious spiritual life or principle created and bestowed on the soul, whereby it is changed in all of its faculties and affections, fitted and enabled to go forth in the way of obedience unto every divine object that is proposed unto it. That is a beautiful, beautiful summary of what God is doing to us. He changes our wills and affections. He changes all of our faculties. And he makes us fit and enables us to do what? To go forth in obedience to every divine object that is proposed to it. When the preacher says from the word of God, Saint, you must do this. You say, Amen. That's what the Spirit does for us. This principle is something that is newly created in God. By God. And is not natural to the sinful individual. It is given by God. 
not obtained by practice. This habit brings about a change in the faculties and elements of the soul so that they are no longer bound to sinful action as they were before, but are free to follow God in obedience. God frees up your will so that you can obey Him. You know, God is not up there pulling the strings. You, you yourself, must obey God. He has freed you. Rather, He's freed your will to do so. This spiritual life, in closing, that Owen speaks of is the divine life that our Christ humanity enjoys. And through participating in the graces of Christ's person, in his humanity, the stain and wound of sin is destroyed. Because of the grace of Christ, man is now rightly ordered to God, or rather being ordered to God rightly, and as a result, sin is being destroyed. Let's pray.